Welcome to the Lancet Respiratory Medicine Podcast. I'm Aaron Van Dorn. End-of-life practices in intensive care units vary greatly around the world, and the Ethicus 2 study recently published in TLRM investigated the global disparities in practice. Looking at nearly 200 ICUs across 36 countries, the study investigated topics like withholding and withdrawing of life-sustaining therapies and the number of patients who died under CPR. Today on the podcast, we'll be speaking with authors from the Ethicus 2 study, beginning with lead author Charles Sprung, an anesthesiologist from Hadassah Hebrew University Medical Center in Jerusalem, Israel. Dr. Sprung, can you give us some background on the Ethicus 2 study and what its aims were? Sure. So the Ethicus 2 study was designed to test the hypothesis that there's been a change in end-of-life practices over 15 years from the time the first Ethicus study was performed in 1999-2000, and that study was performed in 37 ICUs in 17 European countries. When repeating the Ethicus study, we decided to not only study the European centers, but we expanded the study to be worldwide. All regions were defined prospectively, and the principal investigators who decided which regions that their countries should be placed in. The Ethicus II comparison study was published in JAMA in 2009, and the present Worldwide Ethicus II paper will be published in Lancet Respiratory Medicine. And this study looked at end-of-life practices in 199 ICUs in 36 countries. Can you give us a brief overview of how the data was collected and the main findings? We specifically developed an Ethicus data form, and that was completed at each institution by the senior intensivist who was responsible for the end of life decisions, and they uploaded all the data onto our internet website. The main findings were that limitations of life-sustaining therapies are common in ICUs worldwide, but there is regional variability. Withholding treatment was more common than withdrawing life-sustaining treatments, 44% versus 36%. And some examples of the variations include treatment withdrawal, which was much more common in Northern Europe and Australia, New Zealand, compared to Latin America and Africa. And there was much less failed CPR in Northern Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and North America when compared to Africa, Latin America, and Southern Europe. Interestingly, one in five patients with life-sustaining treatment limitations survived hospitalization. This is important because it means that respecting a patient's wishes and limiting therapy does not always mean that the patient will die. Up first, we'll hear from Dr. Christiana Hartong from the charity Universitats Medicine in Berlin, Germany, discussing how end-of-life practices differ within and without Europe. Dr. Hartog, what were the results from your area? Uh, we included patients in Europe. That was 20 countries. So we divided Europe into three regions. And let me just enumerate the countries to give you an idea. So Northern Europe, this included Scandinavia, UK, Ireland, and the Netherlands. Central Europe included Germany, Switzerland, Belgium, France, Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland. And Southern Europe included Spain, Portugal, Italy, Cyprus, Turkey, and Israel. The remarkable thing is actually looking at the European results, that there was such a variety of variability of end-of-life practices among the three European regions. And there also was a north-south gradient. That was really remarkable. A picture emerges where, where patients in the north with end-of-life care get earlier treatment limitations, more frequently withdrawing than withholding than in southern Europe. 
For example, treatment limitations, the frequency was 91% in Northern Europe and 68% in Southern Europe. That's a big difference. And Central Europe comes like always in between with 85%. So in the South, almost all patients died in the ICU, 96% of patients. In Central and Northern Europe, only 80% and 83%. And also in Northern Europe, therapy was more often withdrawn than withheld. So withdrawing occurred in 53% of patients in Northern Europe and 25% in Southern Europe. Central, again, coming in in between with 37%. So conversely, only 4% of patients in Northern Europe experienced failed CPR, meaning death undergoing maximal therapy. And that's very low, only 4% of patients. So compare this to failed CPR in Southern Europe, which occurred about six times more frequently, 23%, and three times more frequently in Central Europe, 11%. And lastly, we also found that the timing of uh, treatment limitations was different. It occurred much earlier in the North and Central Europe, one to, to two days in median after ICU admission. And in Southern Europe, three to four days after ICU admissions. So I had not expected that the differences would be so large among European countries. How are these results compared with other regions? We compared the European regions with the other regions and the frequency of treatment limitations in Northern Europe, interestingly, was similar to those in North America and Australia, New Zealand, while Southern Europe was similar to South America. Now, why should that be so? A a hypothesis is what you could speculate, that these countries share similar cultures, languages, and religion, and that societies in the South are generally more paternalistic and conservative than societies in the North. Could you explain some of the reasons for these differences? Well, I believe that even in affluent societies, end-of-life care is evolving, Earlier, it used to mean that you kept on treating patients until you ran out of options. But now it is more developing towards more frequent and earlier decisions to limit life-sustaining therapy. And this, of course, is in the interest of patients and families. It enables a dignified death or increasingly discharge from the ICU and death, maybe even at home, which is what most patients want. If you accept this interpretation, then I believe our data are indicative of some sort of progress towards patient-centeredness across the regions, with Northern European countries leading the field in Europe. And personally, coming from Germany, which, as I said in the beginning, is in Central Europe, I am afraid that Germany is probably a little more paternalistic and conservative than I thought it would be in comparison, and there's still room for further improvement in this field. Next, Dr. Joseph Nates, Deputy Chair of Critical Care Medicine at MD Anderson in Houston, Texas, discusses the differences in end-of-life practices in the Americas. Dr. Nates, what were the results from your area? In the Americans, uh, 19 intensive care units participating in the Ethicos 2 study. So we are talking about North and South America. Nine units from North America, including Mexico and the United States, and 10 units from Latin America, including countries like Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, and the Dominican Republic. There were different practices that we note uh, were very different, uh, some similar, like, for example, 
the most frequent end-of-life approach in North and Latin America was withholding, but withdrawing in North America occurring over a third of the patients at the end of life. In contrast, Latin American ICUs only reported withdrawing in about 6% of the patients. This indicates that the Latin American units were more conservative and the option of withdrawing was seldom considered. We also noticed other things. Uh, we found that uh, there were significant differences in cardiopulmonary resuscitation. It failed 28% of the time in Latin American units, while in the North American units, only 8.5%. This is a striking difference. These results are consistent with a low percentage of withdrawing and show a higher percentage of resuscitations performed in very ill individuals. Also, the time from the institution of withholding to the time of death was more shorter in Latin American units compared to our American and uh, European colleagues. How were these results compared with other regions? Interestingly, North American units showed practices that were very close to those seen in Northern Europe, like in the UK, Northern Ireland, etc. While the Latin American units were closer to Southern Europe, like in Spain, Portugal, etc. Could you explain some of the reasons for these differences? I think that the contrast not seems to follow our similar cultural and religious backgrounds, North America with Northern Europe and South America with Southern Europe. Some of these practices may also indicate a North to South gradient with limitations more common in higher gross national income countries. The higher than expected survival after limitations in North America was surprising and supports a trend to choose less aggressive life support therapies and an earlier palliative care involvement. Latin American units had very different results. Only 4% survive after withholding for the reasons I already mentioned. Finally, Professor Gavin Joint from the Prince of Wales Hospital Intensive Care Unit at the Chinese University of Hong Kong discusses results from the Asian region and how they compare. Dr. Joint, what were the results from your area? Asia was represented by five countries and regions, mainland China, Hong Kong, a special administrative region of China, India, Japan, Republic of Korea, and Thailand. Now, in Asia, more than 80% of terminally ill have life support therapy limited prior to death, either withheld or withdrawn, with about 17% of patients receiving continued life support up to and including failed cardiopulmonary resuscitation prior to death. In Asia, we see as well that the withdrawing of life support therapy when compared to the withholding of life support therapy was equally commonly practiced. How do these results differ or how similar are they to other regions? The results from Asia fairly consistently lie somewhere between the extremes of limitation of life support practices reported in the paper. On the one hand, we have those from Northern Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand, where practice of life support therapy limitation is more frequent. And on the other hand, those reported from Africa, Latin America, Southern Europe, where the practice of limitation of life support is less frequent. And as an example, the proportion of patients in ICU receiving failed cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR, prior to death is quite a good marker of a lack of prior implementation of limitation of life support therapies. And this group comprises about 17% of patients in Asia. So we can clearly see the differences in the rate of failed CPR prior to death, especially when compared with Northern Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand regions, regions that have ranges from only 4 to 8%, much lower than the 17% of Asia, indicating that earlier limitation of life support has occurred more frequently. While on the other hand, if we looked at failed CPR rate prior to death in Africa, Latin America, and Southern Europe, it was much higher. 
ranging between 23 to 65%, much higher again than the 17% that we see in Asia, indicating that in these countries, limitations have much less frequently occurred before death. What do you think some of the reasons for this discrepancy are? A little difficult. Because of the substantial cultural and economic diversity that we have within Asia, it's tricky to speculate on Asia as a whole regarding reasons for these findings. However, two factors I think are particularly relevant to Asia and do stand out. First, nearly all Asian cultures strongly value the concept of filial piety. That means the awareness of the duty to repay the burden borne by one's parents or extended family in your early life. And thus there's this sort of tension between a cultural tradition of keeping and being seen to keep relatives alive as long as possible to repay this perceived debt. And on the other hand, there's the more modern patient-centric approach that values the need to reduce pain and suffering and ensure the dignity that patients deserve during the dying process. The second issue really is that in Asia, there's quite a strongly reported association between regions with greater economic wealth and a greater rate of limitation of life support in terminally ill patients. And it can be speculated that the wealthier regions have generally had a greater and longer history of access to ICU care, both among doctors, healthcare professionals in general, and the public. And it's possible that over time in these wealthier regions, traditional cultural attitudes have had the opportunity to progressively adapt to the realities of ICU care, particularly in a patient-centered way. And this process seems to result in a greater acceptance of limitation therapies at the end of life. If we look at Asia economically, wealth is very variable, but on average, probably lies somewhere between the worldwide and regional extremes that we've seen in this paper. And thus, perhaps similarly, we see the continuum of evolving ICU end-of-life practices being some, something intermediate. In the end, I do believe most people would value and desire the experience of a painless, dignified dying process, naturally within a culturally accepted framework to them. And this process of adapting culture and possibly religion to technological change does, I believe, take time. And different parts of the world may be in different places on this journey. So importantly, I do believe it may be possible to speed this process of adapting cultural values to deal with technological advances by better communications, sensitive education, and the type of information that you will get from this paper. Dr. Sprung, how do you use the data on global differences in the end-of-life practices to help determine potential differences in quality of end-of-life care? What future research is needed? In our study, we identified differences in end-of-life practices, but without more specific information, we really can't evaluate the quality of end-of-life care in our study. We believe recognizing regional differences and their reasons may help improve end-of-life care worldwide. We are currently evaluating religion and religiosities as reasons for this variability. In addition, we are presently designing a new worldwide study to prospectively evaluate the ethical practice variables that we use in the Ethicus 2 study to help identify interventions that can lead to high-quality end-of-life care. Dr. Sprung, thank you to you and your colleagues for speaking with us today. Thank you for inviting me, and we look forward to hearing this podcast.